This is section 63 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 63, The Sacramento Daily Union, September 1866, part 2. The Sacramento Daily Union, September 22, 1866. Kealakakua Bay, July, 1866. The Romantic God Lono. I have been writing a good deal of late about the great God Lono and Captain Cook's personation of him. Now, while I am here in Lono's home, upon ground which his terrible feet have trodden in remote ages, unless these natives lie, and they would hardly do that, I suppose, I might as well tell who he was. The idol the natives worshipped for him was a slender, unornamented staff twelve feet long. Unpoetical history says he was a favorite god on the island of Hawaii, a great king who had been deified for meritorious services, just our own fashion of rewarding heroes, with the difference that we would have made him a postmaster instead of a god, no doubt. In an angry moment he slew his wife, a goddess named Kaikilani Ailii, Remorse of conscience drove him mad, and tradition presents us the singular spectacle of a god traveling on the shoulder, for in his gnawing grief he wandered about from place to place, boxing and wrestling with all whom he met. Of course this pastime soon lost its novelty, inasmuch as it must necessarily have been the case that when so powerful a deity sent a frail human opponent to grass, he never came back any more. Therefore he instituted games called makahiki, and ordered that they should be held in his honor, and then sailed for foreign lands on a three-cornered raft, stating that he would return some day, and that was the last of Lono. He was never seen any more. His raft got swamped, perhaps, but the people always expected his return, and they were easily led to accept Captain Cook as the restored god. THE POETIC TRADITION but there is another tradition which is rather more poetical than this bald historical one. Lono lived in considerable style up here on the hillside. His wife was very beautiful, and he was devoted to her. One day he overheard a stranger proposing an elopement to her, and without waiting to hear her reply, he took the stranger's life and then upbraided Kaikilani so harshly that her sensitive nature was wounded to the quick. She went away in tears and Lono began to repent of his hasty conduct almost before she was out of sight. He sat him down under a coconut tree to await her return, intending to receive her with such tokens of affection and contrition as should restore her confidence and drive all sorrow from her heart. But hour after hour winged its tardy flight, and yet she did not come. The sun went down and left him desolate. His all-wise instincts may have warned him that the separation was final, but he hoped on, nevertheless, and when the darkness was heavy he built a beacon-fire at his door to guide the wanderer home again, if by any chance she had lost her way. But the night waxed and waned, and brought another day, but not the goddess. Lono hurried forth and sought her far and wide, but found no trace of her. At night he set his beacon-fire again and kept lone watch, but still she came not, and a new day found him a despairing, broken-hearted god. His misery could no longer brook suspense and solitude, and he set out to look for her. He told his sympathizing people 
he was going to search through all the island world for the lost light of his household and he would never come back any more till he found her the natives always implicitly believed that he was still pursuing his patient quest and that he would find his peerless spouse again some day and come back and so for ages they waited and watched in trusting simplicity for his return they gazed out wistfully over the sea at any strange appearance on its waters thinking it might be their loved and lost protector but lono was to them as the rainbow-tinted future seen in happy visions of youth for he never came some of the old natives believed cook was lono to the day of their death but many did not for they could not understand how he could die if he was a god the field of the vanquished gods only a mile or so from kealakekua bay is a spot of historic interest the place where the last battle was fought for idolatry of course we visited it and came away as wise as most people do who go and gaze upon such mementos of the past when in an unreflective mood while the first missionaries were on their way around the horn the idolatrous customs which had obtained in the islands as far back as tradition reached were suddenly broken up old kamehameha i was dead and his son liholiho the new king was a free liver a roistering dissolute fellow and hated the restraints of the ancient taboo his assistant in the government kaahumanu the queen dowager was proud and high-spirited and hated the taboo because it restricted the privilege of her sex and degraded all women very nearly to the level of brutes so the case stood liholiho had half a mind to put his foot down kaahumanu had a whole mind to badger him into doing it and whiskey did the rest it was probably the first time whiskey ever prominently figured as an aid to civilization liholiho came up to kailua as drunk as a piper and attended a great feast the determined queen spurred his drunken courage up to a reckless pitch and while all the multitude stared in blank dismay he moved deliberately forward and sat down with the women they saw him eat from the same vessel with them and were appalled terrible moments drifted slowly by and still the king ate still he lived still the lightnings of the insulted gods were withheld then conviction came like a revelation the superstitions of a hundred generations passed from before the people like a cloud and a shout went up the taboo is broken the taboo is broken thus did king liholiho and his dreadful whiskey preach the first sermon and prepare the way for the new gospel that was speeding southward over the waves of the atlantic the taboo broken and destruction failing to follow the awful sacrilege the people with that childlike precipitancy which has always characterized them jumped to the conclusion that their gods were a weak and wretched swindle just as they formerly jumped to the conclusion that captain cook was no god merely because he groaned and promptly killed him without stopping to inquire whether a god might not groan as well as a man if it suited his pleasure to do it and satisfied that the idols were powerless to protect themselves they went to work at once and pulled them down hacked them to pieces applied the torch annihilated them the pagan priests were furious and well they might be they had held the fattest offices in the land and now they were beggared they had been great they had stood above the chiefs and now they were vagabonds 
They raised a revolt. They scared a number of people into joining their standard, and Kekuokolani, an ambitious offshoot of royalty, was easily persuaded to become their leader. In the first skirmish, the idolaters triumphed over the royal army sent against them, and full of confidence they resolved to march upon Kailua. The king sent an envoy to try and conciliate them, and came very near being an envoy short by the operation. The savages not only refused to listen to him, but wanted to kill him. So the king sent his men forth under Major General Kalaimoku, and the two hosts met at Kuamu. The battle was long and fierce, men and women fighting side by side, as was the custom, and when the day was done, the rebels were flying in every direction in hopeless panic, and idolatry and the taboo were dead in the land. The royalists marched gaily home to Kailua, glorifying the new dispensation. "'There is no power in the gods,' said they. "'They are a vanity and a lie. The army with idols was weak. The army without idols was strong and victorious. The nation was without a religion. The missionary ship arrived in safety shortly afterward, timed by providential exactness to meet the emergency, and the gospel was planted as in a virgin soil.' canoe voyage at noon we hired a kanaka to take us down to the ancient ruins at hunaunau in his canoe price two dollars reasonable enough for a sea voyage of eight miles counting both ways the native canoe is an irresponsible-looking contrivance i cannot think of anything to liken it to but a boy's sled-runner hollowed out and that does not quite convey the correct idea it is about fifteen feet long high and pointed at both ends, is a foot and a half or two feet deep, and so narrow that if you wedged a fat man into it, you might not get him out again. It seems to sit right upon top of the water like a duck, but it has an outrigger and does not upset easily if you keep still. This outrigger is formed of two long bent sticks, like plough handles, which project from one side, and to their outer ends is bound a curved beam composed of an extremely light wood, which skims along the surface of the water, and thus saves you from an upset on that side, while the outrigger's weight is not so easily lifted as to make an upset on the other side a thing to be greatly feared. Still, until one gets used to sitting perched upon this knife-blade, he is apt to reason within himself that it would be more comfortable if there were just an outrigger or so on the other side also. Sleepy Scenery I had the bow-seat, and Brown sat amidships and faced the Kanaka, who occupied the stern of the craft, and did the paddling. With the first stroke the trim shell of a thing shot out from the shore like an arrow. There was not much to see. While we were on the shallow water of the reef, it was pastime to look down into the limpid depths at the large bunches of branching coral, the unique shrubbery of the sea. We lost that, though, when we got out into the dead blue water of the deep. But we had the picture of the surf, then, dashing angrily against the crag-bound shore, and sending a foaming spray high into the air. There was interest in this beetling border, too, for it was honeycombed with quaint caves and arches and tunnels, and had a rude semblance of the dilapidated architecture of ruined keeps and castles rising out of the restless sea. When this novelty ceased to be a novelty, we had to turn our eyes shoreward and gaze at the long mountain with its rich green forests stretching into the curtaining clouds, and at the specks of houses in rearward distance, 
and the diminished schooner riding sleepily at anchor. And when these grew tiresome, we dashed boldly into the midst of a school of huge, beastly porpoises engaged at their eternal game of arching over a wave and disappearing, and then doing it over again, and keeping it up, always circling over in that way, like so many well-submerged wheels. But the porpoises wheeled themselves away, and then we were thrown upon our own resources. It did not take many minutes to discover that the sun was blazing like a bonfire, and that the weather was of a melting temperature. It had a drowsing effect, too, and when Brown attempted to open a conversation, I let him close it again for lack of encouragement. I expected he would begin on the Kanaka, and he did. "'Fine day, John!' "'Aola icky!' I took that to mean, I don't know, and as equivalent to, I don't understand you. "'Sort of sultry, though!' "'Aola icky!' "'You're right. At least I'll let it go at that, anyway. It makes you sweat considerable, don't it? "'Aola icky!' "'Right again, likely. You better take a bath when you get down here to Honaunau. You don't smell good, anyhow, and you can't sweat that way long without smelling worse. Aola Iki. Oh, this ain't any use. This engine don't seem to know anything but Aori Iki, and the interest of that begins to let down after it's been said sixteen or seventeen times. I reckon I'll bail out a while for a change. I expected he would upset the canoe, and he did. It was well enough to take the chances, though, because the sea had flung the blossom of a wave into the boat every now and then, until, as Brown said in a happy spirit of exaggeration, there was about as much water inside as there was outside. There was no peril about the upset, but there was a great deal of discomfort. The author of the mischief thought there was compensation for it, however, in that there was a marked improvement in the Kanaka smell afterwards. THE RUINED CITY OF REFUGE At the end of an hour we had made the four miles, and landed on a level point of land, upon which was a wide extent of old ruins, with many a tall coconut tree growing among them. Here was the ancient city of refuge, a vast enclosure, whose stone walls were twenty feet thick at the base, and fifteen or twenty feet high, an oblong square, a thousand and forty feet one way, and a fraction under seven hundred the other. Within this enclosure, in early times, have been three rude temples, each was two hundred and ten feet long by one hundred wide, and thirteen high. In those days, if a man killed another anywhere on the island, the relatives of the deceased were privileged to take the murderer's life, and then a chase for life and liberty began, the outlawed criminal flying through pathless forests and over mountains and plain, with his hopes fixed upon the protecting walls of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood following hotly after him. Sometimes the race was kept up to the very gates of the temple, and the panting pair sped through long files of excited natives, who watched the contest with flashing eye and dilated nostril, encouraging the hunted refugee with sharp and spirited ejaculations, and sending up a ringing shout of exultation when the saving gates closed upon him, and the cheated pursuer sank exhausted at the threshold. But sometimes the flying criminal fell under the hand of the avenger at the very door, when one more brave stride, one more brief second of time, would have brought his feet upon the sacred ground, and barred him against all harm. Where did these isolated pagans get this idea of a city of refuge, this ancient Jewish custom? 
this old sanctuary was sacred to all even to rebels in arms and invading armies once within its walls and confession made to the priest and absolution obtained the wretch with a price on his head could go forth without fear or without danger he was taboo and to harm him was death the routed rebels in the lost battle for idolatry fled to this place to claim sanctuary and many were thus saved the place of execution close to a corner of the great enclosure is a round structure of stone some six or eight feet high with a level top about ten or twelve feet in diameter this was the place of execution a high palisade of coconut piles shut out its cruel scenes from the vulgar multitude here criminals were killed the flesh stripped from the bones and burned and the bones secreted in holes in the body of the structure if the man had been guilty of a high crime the entire corpse was burned a study for the curious the walls of the temple are a study the same food for speculation that is offered the visitor to the pyramids of egypt he will find here the mystery of how they were constructed by a people unacquainted with science and mechanics the natives have no invention of their own for hoisting heavy weights they had no beasts of burden and they have never even shown any knowledge of the properties of the lever yet some of the lava blocks quarried out brought over rough broken ground and built into this wall six or seven feet from the ground are of prodigious size and would weigh tons how did they transport and how raise them both the inner and outer surfaces of the walls present a smooth front and are very creditable specimens of masonry the blocks are of all manner of shapes and sizes but yet are fitted together with the neatest exactness the gradual narrowing of the wall from the base upward is accurately preserved no cement was used but the edifice is firm and compact and is capable of resisting storm and decay for centuries who built this temple and how was it built and when are mysteries that may never be unraveled there were giants in those days outside of these ancient walls lies a sort of coffin-shaped stone eleven feet four inches long and three feet square at the small end it would weigh a few thousand pounds which the high chief who held sway over this district many centuries ago brought hither on his shoulder one day to use as a lounge this circumstance is established by the most reliable traditions he used to lie down on it in his indolent way and keep an eye on his subjects at work for him and see that there was no soldiering done and no doubt there was not any done to speak of because he was a man of that sort of build that incites to attention to business on the part of an employee he was fourteen or fifteen feet high when he stretched himself at full length on his lounge his legs hung down over the end and when he snored he woke the dead these facts are all attested by irrefragable tradition brown said i don't say anything against this injun's inches but i copper his judgment he didn't know his own size because if he did why didn't he fetch a rock that was long enough while he was at it kaahumanu's rock on the other side of the temple is a monstrous seven-ton rock eleven feet long seven feet wide and three feet thick it is raised a foot or, or a foot and a half above the ground and rests upon half a dozen little stony pedestals 
the same old fourteen-footer brought it down from the mountain merely for fun he had his own notions about fun and they were marked by a quaint originality as well and propped it up as we find it now and as others may find it at a century hence for it would take a score of horses to budget from its position they say that fifty or sixty years ago the proud queen kaahumanu used to fly to this rock for safety whenever she had been making trouble with her fierce husband and hide under it until his wrath was appeased but these kanakas will lie and this statement is one of their ablest efforts for kaahumanu was six feet high she was bulky she was built like an ox and she could no more have squeezed under that rock and she could have passed between the cylinders of a sugar-mill. What could she gain by it, even if she succeeded? To be chased and abused by her savage husband could not be otherwise than humiliating to her high spirit, yet it could never make her feel so flat as an hour's repose under that rock would. SCIENCE AMONG BARBARIANS We walked a mile over a raised macadamized road of uniform width, a road paved with flat stones and exhibiting in its every detail a considerable degree of engineering skill some say that wise old pagan kamehameha i planned and built it but others say it was built so long before his time that the knowledge of who constructed it has passed out of the traditions in either case however as the handiwork of an untaught and degraded race it is a thing of pleasing interest the stones are worn and smooth, and pushed apart in places, so that the road has the exact appearance of those ancient paved highways leading out of Rome which one sees in pictures. A Petrified Niagara The object of our tramp was to visit a great natural curiosity at the base of the foothills, a congealed cascade of lava. Some old forgotten volcanic eruption sent its broad river of fire down the mountainside here, and it poured down in a great torrent from an overhanging bluff of some fifty feet high to the ground below. The flaming torrent cooled in the winds from the sea, and remains there to-day all seamed and frost and tippled, a petrified Niagara. It is very picturesque, and withal so natural that one might almost imagine it still flowed. A smaller stream trickled over the cliff and built up an isolated pyramid about thirty feet high, which has the resemblance of a mass of large gnarled and knotted vines and roots and stems intricately twisted and woven together. Nature's Mining Achievements We passed in behind the cascade and the pyramid, and found the bluff pierced by several cavernous tunnels, whose crooked courses we followed about fifty feet, but with no notable result, save that we made a discovery that may be of high interest to men of science we discovered that the darkness in there was singularly like the darkness observable in other particularly dark places exactly like it i thought i am borne out in this opinion by my comrade who said he did not believe there was any difference but if there was he judged it was in favor of this darkness here two of these winding tunnels stand as proof of nature's mining abilities their floors are level they are seven feet wide and their roofs are gently arched. Their height is not uniform, however. We pass through one a hundred feet long, which leads through a spur of the hill, and opens out well up in the sheer wall of a precipice, whose foot rests in the waves of the sea. It is a commodious tunnel, 
except that there are occasionally places in it where one must stoop to pass under. The roof is lava, of course, and is thickly studded with little lava-pointed icicles an inch long, which hardened as they dripped. They project as closely together as the iron teeth of a corn-sheller, and if one will stand up straight and walk any distance there, he can get his hair combed free of charge. Brown tried to hurry me away from this vicinity by saying that if the expected land breeze sprang up while we were absent, the boomerang would be obliged to put to sea without waiting for us. But I did not care. I knew she would land our saddles and shirt-collars at Kau, and we could sail in the superior schooner Emmeline, Emmeline, Captain Crane, which would be entirely to my liking. Wherefore we proceeded to ransack the country for further notable curiosities. Mark Twain. End of section sixty-three.